So after, after I stood in line behind Jesus at his baptism, I lost track of him for a while. Um, it was like the Spirit of God just took him away from that place. About 40 days later, we heard that Jesus was going around and beginning to gather followers to himself. And then one day we heard that Jesus was going to take his followers up on a hillside on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And so we decided to go up there and see what this was all about. Jesus had his disciples gathered around him, and so we came with the crowd right behind the disciples. Jesus sat down and began to speak. And I have to tell you, it had to be the greatest sermon that any of us had ever heard. Jesus wasn't speaking like one of our teachers of the law or one of our scribes just commenting on what he had heard before. Jesus was speaking with authority. He was speaking the words of life almost like he was speaking as God himself. When the sermon was over and we begin to go down from the mountain, some of those who were followers of John the Baptist, we just call them the Baptists, but some of these Baptists asked when the evening sermon was going to happen. And we just looked at them and said, no, Jesus is going down the mountain. I, I think he wants to, us to follow him and, and do what he said. And so we began to follow them down the mountain. And as we were going down the mountain, from a distance we saw a man approaching us. And this man who was approaching us, we could tell something wasn't right, and he's got closer, we realized that he had leprosy. You could see those strange skin tones, the ends of his fingers, the, ends of his, the end of his nose beginning to deteriorate. Um, we didn't have anything to do with people who have leprosy. Not only was leprosy deadly, and not only was it incredibly dangerous and contagious, but lepers were outcasts. They were outcasts from society. They couldn't participate in any of the religious rituals. We didn't have anything to do with them. But Jesus began to walk toward the man with leprosy. And as the man with leprosy approached, he said, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing, be clean. But he didn't just say that. He reached out and touched the man with leprosy. None of us had seen something like this before. We avoided these people. Jesus reached out with compassion and touched the man. And when he spoke to him and touched him, he was healed. The leprosy was gone, and he restored this man to life. And he told the man, he said, don't go and spread this around. I'm not here to draw crowds. Just go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded to be offered as a testimony of what's happened to you. Here was a man with incredible power who was not trying to draw large crowds to himself. He wasn't rejecting Moses and the prophets, but there was something new that was happening. So when we left that area, we went into the town of Capernaum. In Capernaum, a Roman centurion came up to us. Now, you may not think that a leper 
and a Roman centurion have anything in common, but in fact, they were both social outcasts. We didn't have anything to do with the leper, but we also didn't have anything to do with the Roman centurion because he was the leader of the military of a people we hated. We hoped that when the Messiah came, when the Savior came, he would rise up and defeat our enemies. But this Roman centurion came up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus looked at him and said, I will come and heal him. Now this was strange. The one that we hoped would rise up to crush our military and political enemy was speaking compassionately to him and wanting to heal his servant. But then the centurion replied to Jesus and said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, come, and he comes, and I tell my servant what to do, and they do it. And man, you should have seen the look on Jesus' face at that moment, the spark in his eye. He said, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And I tell you, that many will come from the east and the west and will recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we found out later that that centurion's servant had been healed at that very moment. What could be greater than this? One who could heal leprosy And one who reached out to our enemy to heal his servant? What could be more shocking, more surprising, more amazing? And then as he often did, Peter said, hold my grape juice. And he walked over to Jesus. And he said, Lord, uh, my mother-in-law lives at my house. And she is sick with with a terrible fever. Could you come to the house? Now you have to realize that in our world, a fever was almost always a death sentence. And so Jesus went to Peter's home, and he walked into where his mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and he reached down, took her hand, and she was immediately healed and restored to be able to do the things that she wanted to do. The one who healed leprosy, the one who reached out to enemies, could even heal mother-in-laws. What more could you imagine? And the word about this spread everywhere. That evening, the floodgates opened, and many people were brought in, many of whom were demon-possessed, and Jesus cast out the evil spirits, and he healed many who were sick. And as I watched this happen, it was like the words of the prophet Isaiah were coming to life. The great prophet Isaiah who had said that one day the servant of God would come and he would take our illnesses and he would bear our diseases. And this was happening. But when Jesus saw the crowds beginning to build, he knew he had to get out of there. So he asked for a boat so that he and his disciples could get away to the other side of the lake. 
while they were getting this boat together, one of the teachers of the law came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. Now wanting to make sure that they actually knew what they meant by the word follow, Jesus said, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then one of the other disciples came up and said, teacher, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. And so Jesus and the disciples got into the boat and they headed east across the lake. So as they headed out, we turned around and went back toward the city. And as we were getting close to the city, we heard something and we turned around and when we looked back at the lake, one of these famous storms was coming up on the lake. I don't know about where you live, if you have any experience with severe weather and storms coming up out of nowhere. Um, but if you do, it was very much like that. So the Sea of Galilee is famous because you have dry air on one side and you have warm, moist winds that blow down the other side and these storms will form out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. And we looked back and we saw one of these storms forming and we found out from the disciples later that Jesus had fallen asleep almost immediately when he got in the boat. And when the storm came up, the disciples panicked and they yelled, Lord, please save us, we're going to drown. And Jesus woke up, looked at them and said, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he rebuked the wind and the waves and the storm calmed down. Who was this that even the wind and the waves obeyed him? And we found out that when Jesus and the disciples got to the east side of the lake, they went into the area of the Gadarenes. Now you need to understand that the other side of the lake was the other side of the tracks. We didn't go there. The people there were not like us. It was wild. It was the area of the Decapolis, the ten cities that were mainly made up of Gentiles. This was not an area that we often went. But Jesus went there, and when he and his disciples got to the other side, two demon-possessed men came up to him. And not just were they demon-possessed, but they had been living among the tombs in that area. We didn't do leprosy, and we didn't do Roman centurions, and we definitely did not do dead people. We knew that you did not go among the tombs because to encounter the dead was to make yourself religiously impure. But here was Jesus who seemed to want to walk into the heart of darkness and evil and death. And these two demon-possessed men come up to Jesus, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And just off to the side, there was a herd of pigs. You should know we don't do pigs either. They were off to the side. And these demon-possessed men said, if you're going to cast us out, send these evil spirits into the pigs. And Jesus just said, go. And the evil spirits were cast out, went into the herd of pigs. The herd of pigs ran down the hillside into the water where they all drowned. This freaked the herdsmen out, and they ran back into the city to tell the people what had happened, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And when the city found out, they came out to confront Jesus. 
They were afraid. They were amazed. But mainly they just said, would you please leave our area? And after they begged Jesus to leave, he and the disciples got back into the boat to come west back to Capernaum. So when me and my buddies heard that Jesus and the disciples were coming back, we went and found one of our friends who was paralyzed. And we picked up his mat and we brought him to Jesus. And when we put our paralyzed friend in front of Jesus, Jesus looked at us and said, seeing our faith, turned to our friend and said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now this was even better news than we imagined. Jesus was healing our friend from the inside out. We saw a man who was paralyzed. Jesus had mercy on a man who was a sinner. But this really ticked off the Pharisees. How could this man blaspheme? How could he speak for God in this situation? But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and so he looked at the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? What's easier, to look at a person and say your sins are forgiven, or to look at a person and say, get up and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus looked at our friend, said, get up, take your mat, and go home. All the people there marveled at what had happened. After this situation, Jesus went to a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector. Now, we didn't like the Roman military, and we definitely didn't like the tax collectors who worked alongside the Roman government, who cheated us, who made money because of Roman oppression. But Jesus goes up to Matthew and says, follow me. And so Matthew leaves his business and follows Jesus. That night, there was a huge party at Matthew's house. All of us gathered there. Jesus was reclining at the table with the sinners and the tax collectors. And as you can imagine, this really ticked off the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they said, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus overheard them, and he looked at them and said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so we went from that place, and not only did the Pharisees not like Jesus, but many of the disciples of John the Baptist didn't particularly like Jesus either, and they really didn't like the fact that his followers had stopped fasting. And so when Jesus saw the situation developing, he looked at the followers of John the Baptist, and he said, how can you fast? How can you mourn when the bridegroom is with you? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then you can fast. But remember this, a new, unshrunk piece of cloth cannot be patched on to an old garment because if that happens the patch will tear away and the tear will become worse and we don't pour new wine into old wineskins because if we do the wineskins will burst and the wine will come all over the ground and both the wine and the wineskins will be destroyed 
New wine is poured into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And while Jesus was speaking to the disciples of John, a ruler came up and said, my daughter has died. Please come to the house, lay hands on her, that she may live. And so Jesus began to follow this ruler to his home. And as he did, a woman who had been bleeding for many years came up, and she thought to herself, if I just touch his garment, perhaps I will be healed. And Jesus felt this happen, and he turned around and looked at her, and he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And when he went on to the ruler's home, there was all kinds of commotion going on at the home. And he told the people, go away. The little girl is not dead. She is sleeping. And he went in to the room, even though they were laughing at him and mocking him. He went into the room, took her hand, and she got up. And again, the people marveled at what happened. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men came up crying out for mercy that their sight would be restored. Jesus said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes. And he touched their eyes, and their sight was restored. And he went on from there, and a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak came up to Jesus. Jesus cast out the evil spirit, and the man was able to speak. And people marveled at what had happened. But again, the Pharisees didn't like it. And they said, he is casting out demons by the prince of demons. But this didn't stop Jesus. In fact, if everything that he had done were written down into books, there's a good chance that all the books in the world would not be able to contain the things that he had done. He went through every city and village, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of sickness and disease. And best yet, he didn't become cynical. <laughs> when he saw the crowds, he looked on them with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to us, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into the harvest. Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 9 is meant to be read as a section. As incredible as Matthew 5 to 7 is, giving us the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 8 and 9 is just as incredible, showing us the actions of Jesus. The words of Jesus in the kingdom the actions of Jesus in the kingdom in chapters eight and nine. So what we're going to do is we're gonna spend the next several weeks looking at chapters eight through nine. If we've talked about this is what Jesus taught about being a part of the kingdom, now we're gonna see this is what it looks like to live that out. This is what it looks like when his power comes. And so this morning, we're just going to focus on the first couple of verses of chapter eight. So if you don't already have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 8. If you would open to Matthew chapter 8, or if you have access to the Bible on your phone and want to bring that out, we'll also have a couple of verses, not all the verses, but we'll have a couple of them on, on the screen behind me. So this is 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, coming in Matthew's gospel after the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. As we think about how these chapters show us the power of Jesus, the ministry of the kingdom of God, what that looks like, from the beginning, I want to make sure that we see ourselves appropriately in this story. So before we see ourselves as part of the crowd, before we see ourselves as followers of Jesus, we need to realize that we are that person with leprosy. When we are thinking about the power of God's story, in many ways that represents our situation apart from Christ. That there is nothing that we can do on our own to make ourselves well. That we are separated from any type of religious ritual. We can't work ourselves out of leprosy. We can't popularize, popularize ourselves out of leprosy. There is nothing we can do on our own to get ourselves out of this situation. Our only hope is that the God of the universe intervenes and brings healing and brings cleansing. And so from the very beginning, we need to see the condition of our hearts and the condition of all people that without Christ, we find ourselves in the situation that we cannot fix on our own. We find ourselves very much as this leper crying out, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Now here's the neat part about this. We're gonna find some connections between Matthew 5 to 7 and Matthew 8 and 9. I want you to see, most importantly, how Matthew 5 starts in a similar way to Matthew 8. And what I mean by that is both of the places begin showing us how Jesus comes to those who are weak, to those who are needy. You guys bring that next slide up just for a second, showing the uh, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So back in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount begins, blessed, or the good life belongs to her. This is what it looks like to be honored and happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And it goes on and on and on. It makes you think of Psalm chapter 51, verse 17. That a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Sermon on the Mount begins, blessed are those who are weak, who are poor, who are hurting, but who are hungry for help. Matthew chapter 8 begins with a person, a figure, who in many ways embodies the Beatitudes, embodies one who is poor, who is hurting, who is mourning, who is weak, but who desires healing. So you want to find this parallel between Matthew 5, the beginning there, and Matthew 8, because it lets us know these are the type of people who are able to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the type of person that's able to receive the ministry and the teaching of Jesus into their lives. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Not that I have it all together, but that I realize I don't. And my only hope comes through Christ. And then you go back to verse 3, and it gives us a picture. This is chapter 8, verse 3. It gives us a picture of Jesus' ministry in one verse. It says, Jesus stretched out his hand 
and touch the man saying, I will, I desire this, I am willing to do this, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, we, we talk about this a good bit uh, at Emmaus, but this combination between teaching and actions Words and actions is core to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus speaks healing, but he also administers the power of healing as he reaches out and he touches this man who is rejected by society. He touches this man that no one else will have anything to do with. And I want you to see just for a second, there's a pattern of this that happens throughout chapters 8 through 9. So if you look down in verse 14, chapter 8, verse 4, we're just looking for situations where Jesus reaches out and, and touches the person in need. For the centurion in verse 5, he was willing to come to his home, but the centurion responds in faith, and so he doesn't. But you get to verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. And then you go down to chapter 9, verse 10. Skipping ahead a little bit, chapter 9, verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Can I just urge you never to lose sight of how amazing it is that Jesus goes into this house that he doesn't stand outside the house and say, you need to come out to me. He goes in, and he's at the table eating with these people that are despised by the religious elites of the day. Jesus goes there. He interacts with them. He touches the food. He touches the table. He's with them in this situation. You skip down uh, further in chapter 9 to verse 20, uh, 23, 24, 25, that area where he's healing this little girl. Uh, look at verse 25. When the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. We skipped over it, but even saw in the story with the woman who was bleeding how Jesus wasn't the one who initiated the touch, but she touched him, and he realized that something had happened in that situation. And then when he encounters the two men who are blind down there in verses 27 to 30, in verse 29 he says, it says, he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. This idea, when you think about what it looks like to encounter Jesus, what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, there are really two elements that you find in these chapters. Healing touch and gracious words. When you boil these chapters down and think about what does it look like for the ministry of Jesus to happen, what does it look like for these people in wild situations to encounter Jesus, healing touch and gracious words. And this idea of healing touch, in many ways, it's a working out of a piece of theology, and this is a theology word that is worth us making sure we all know together, but it's a working out of what we call the incarnation. The incarnation is this idea that God does not stay separate from his people. But as God, he comes to us in the flesh, fully human, which means he's able to touch, he's able to eat, he's able to walk with the people, he's able to interact with them and speak to them. 
And so he doesn't stay far away, but this great teacher doesn't just use the words of chapters 5 through 7. He uses the touch of the incarnation that says that the God of the universe walks into our mess and our sickness and our disease and our pain, and he provides a healing touch in those situations. And who does he come to? The people who have it all together? The people who can give back to him? No, we've already talked about this. He comes to the leper. He comes to the Roman centurion. He comes to our mothers-in-law. I mean, he comes to everybody. He says, it's not that you have it together. It's that I love you. And I show this as I interact with, as I touch, as I show you my power. And not only who does he come to, but how does he do it? He does it as he spends time with the people, as he interacts with them. He doesn't stay distant from us, but he comes and he provides this type of ministry to the people. Uh, a quick caution here before we move on to kind of the next element of this. A quick caution. When we think about church and, and being a follower of Jesus, if we're not careful, we can be drawn to one or the other either the words or the actions, when in reality we need both. So some people are really drawn to the teaching Jesus. They love the idea of chapters five through seven, but they're not sure about chapters eight through nine. Other people love the action Jesus. They like chapters eight through nine, but they really wish he wouldn't be so divisive with his teaching in chapters five through seven. And so you've got both of these elements, but what we want to see is that when we encounter Jesus, when we're a part of the kingdom of God, both of these things are, are at work. And so for an, a church like ours, we've got to be careful if all you're ever drawn to is the teaching, and we're never seeing that in action, or we're never seeing God's work in our life, we're missing what it means to encounter Jesus. Or if we say, you know what, I just want a little bit of teaching, just enough to make me feel better, but I really don't want God to get involved in my life and to change anything, that's a dangerous place to be as well. And so I want you to see what it looks like for Jesus to, to provide this healing touch. But here's step two, okay? Here's step two. So we identify with the leper. We identify with the one who needs the healing touch of Jesus. Then, as his followers, we are able to do that for others, so we experience the healing, life-changing touch of Jesus, and then as his followers, we're called to do that for others, to reach out and to care, to reach out and to be involved in people's lives, not to stay distant from those who are hurting, but to be able to provide that type of touch, that type of impact in a person's life where they experience the power of God, not because of how great we are, but because we're trying to point them to God's greatness. So as his people, we are able to provide this life-giving, dignifying, and let's just add to that appropriate physical touch, okay? So we're gonna take a very short little detour here, and I know we have kids of all ages in the building, so I'll be super careful how I talk about this. But when we as a church and as those who are followers of Jesus right now at this time in which we live, when we think about the power of healing touch, what that does in a person's life, we also recognize that we live in a time where that touch has been taken advantage of. Back in February of this year, 
the Houston Chronicle newspaper released a huge multi-part report about the reality of abuse in Southern Baptist churches. Um, the stories are gut-wrenching, they're heartbreaking, most of them it's almost impossible to read just because of the reality that represents. But what do we do in those type of situations where something good and healing like touch is misused by those in power? Well, I tell you one thing we don't do, we don't hide our heads in the sand because that doesn't get us anywhere. And that shows that we don't understand what's going on in these situations. So we don't, we don't hide our heads in the sand in these type of situations. We have to figure out how we're going to respond. So one of the ways that we respond to this is that we just take screening and training and preparation so seriously. Um, I will send this out in an email this week. As I, every week or so, I'll send out an email. If you're not a part of our email database and you'd be interested in this, just put that little guest card in the, uh, in the offering plate at the end, and I'll make sure you get added to that list. But yesterday, just yesterday, a group called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the ERLC, they released a report that came out of an advisory group that was put together this past year by Southern Baptists to address this problem of abuse, and specifically sexual abuse, in, in churches. So just yesterday, they released their report that's available now, and it provides some key findings that came out of that report, and also provides ways that we as churches are going to find out how to respond. I'll tell you up front, we already have a very, very strong uh, screening process and training process in place, and we have taken, before this report ever came out, we've taken actions to ratchet that up uh, another level. It also means that we will do anything necessary to step in to care for those who are weak, who are taken advantage of, who find themselves in the victim's place. In other words, there's no covering anybody because of reputation or because of trying to protect an organization. This is about protecting the weak. This is about protecting the people who need to be cared for. And so healing touch is a good thing, and we have to be willing to respond to that. But here's something even better. One of the best things we can do as a church is we can model what life-affirming, dignifying, God-honoring physical touch really means. Think about it this way. What does it mean for a widow or a single person or someone going through a separation or a divorce to come to a church worship gathering where maybe throughout the week they've experienced no physical touch in the way that says, I care for you, I affirm you, I love you. And the gathering of the church is where Paul commands people to offer a holy kiss. What about that kiss is holy? Not that we kiss each other, but that it's appropriate and it's God-honoring and it's set apart to say, I see you. Healing touch says, I see you, you matter to God, you matter to us, we will reach out and care for you. Or the child who never experiences this at home, but they come to church and they see from an adult what loving, caring, appropriate, healing touch is really all about. Or the business person who during the week has to fake it 
with handshakes and bro hugs that they really don't mean, but they just know they have to do this to stay in business during the week. But they come to church, and they know this is a place where people care. This is a place where my brothers and sisters in Christ are able to reach out and show the love of God. We want to be a place where this healing touch takes place. Medical research has shown that touch really is healing. There's incredible research that's come out from doctors and nurses and and health um, practitioners showing the power of touch. Here's another way to think about this idea. Think about the gift of your home and the gift of hospitality. On your sermon notes, I've listed a resource. I've listed a book about the practice of hospitality by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. If you don't know Rosaria's work, it's worth knowing her work in general. She was a far-left academic lesbian who came to faith in Christ, and God has completely transformed her life in many, many different ways. And one of the most amazing ways she practices that is through the gift of hospitality. And so this book is about how do we interact with people? How do we make an impact in people's lives? How do we eat with them in a way that shows them the healing, life-transforming love of God? We do that through our homes. We do that through our interactions at church, through the ministries that God has called us to, that we can go out into our community. This is the gift of being a part of Emmaus. This is the gift of what Jim leads us to do is that we go out and we have a touch in the community. We're able to interact with people. We're able to show the love of God, not just to do those actions, but in order to speak gracious words to them. If you ever pinned me down and said, Owen, what are probably the most important verse, the two most important verses to you in the whole Bible? I would always take you to John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69 where Peter answers the Lord as many people are leaving the Lord because of things that have been said and done and the crowds are going away and Jesus is showing why he's so bad at church growth and all the people are going away. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What does God do in our lives? He provides a healing transformative work of his spirit, his power, and we receive the words of life. What do we do for others? We provide healing touch and life-giving words when we point people toward Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is what we have been called to. And so as we think about how to move forward from here, I want to let you know how we're going to wrap up our time this morning and then how we're going to move ahead. Number one, we have to see ourselves in the place of that man with leprosy. Do we really recognize the fact that without Christ, we are that person with leprosy? That we are cut off? That we are destined for death and separation? And we cannot do anything in our own power to fix that, but Jesus wants to make us clean. He wants to do that. And so we trust in him for salvation and for healing. And then when that happens in our lives, here's the second thing for us to think about this morning. God, who have you put in my life who is hurting? But you have put me there because I can provide healing touch 
and I can provide gracious, life-giving words. Does it happen in my home? Does it happen on my sports team? Does it happen in my neighborhood? Does it happen in my workplace? Where have you placed me? Who have you placed around me that I can do this for others? The way we're gonna wrap up our service this morning is I'm gonna guide us through a time of introspective prayer where we're just staying right where we are and we're praying, thinking, God, I want these things to be true in my life. After that time of prayer, we're gonna take up our offering. We're gonna show you the fun Vacation Bible School video uh, that we have, highlight video. And then when we're dismissed, I always want you to remind you that we stay up here at the front as pastors, as leaders. If you're here this morning, and God is calling you to trust in Jesus for salvation, please do not leave this building without telling someone about God's work in your life. Would you bow your head with me just for a minute? We're not gonna hurry through this time. We're just gonna take some time in prayer. We know life will move plenty fast uh, when we leave this building in a couple of minutes. We wanna make sure our hearts are right before the Lord. So right where you are, as you are focusing your heart and your mind on the Lord. Start out by putting yourself in the situation of that person with leprosy. Do we recognize the condition of our lives without Christ? And do we know what it is to experience the salvation that Jesus brings? Maybe you have a lot of respect for Jesus, but you've always been turned off by the idea of salvation or this idea of him reaching out and transforming your life. I pray that these stories in Matthew 8 through 9 would draw you to the Lord. We are separated from him because of our sin, but Jesus took on that sin. He took on our illnesses and he bore our diseases and he took our place when he died for you. And he rose from the dead to defeat the power of death. And he is calling you today to trust in him. If you have questions about that salvation, I would urge you this morning to respond. Don't leave this building without talking to someone, maybe a friend or a family member, maybe a pastor down front. Talking to someone about God's work in your life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, who has God placed in your life that you can provide healing touch? Maybe they are pushed aside by everyone else, but God has placed you there to care for them, to speak to them, to interact with them, to invite them into your home. And I want to ask us last of all, to pray specifically for those who are hurting because of abuse, who have gone through a situation where a person in power took advantage of them. Pray that justice would be done in those situations, that healing would be pursued. If that's your situation, know that God has not left you, that he is at work, he is the God of justice, he is the God who reaches into the lives of those who are hurting, Know that we want to care for you and love you with the power of the gospel. God, thank you for the power of your word. 
Thank you for the words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. God, thank you for his power that's displayed in these chapters throughout the Gospel of Matthew. God, thank you for your work in our lives, that you transform our lives by the power of your Spirit, by the truth of your word. God, even this morning that there would be people who would trust in you for salvation for the first time. And God, you send us out to provide healing touch and gracious words to people around us. God, let us proclaim and display Jesus in our neighborhoods, in these communities, and into all nations. God, you are good, and you are faithful, and you are compassionate. We trust in you and we worship you this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.